Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast, presented by Paul Spain and Anne Guest. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We're at episode number 141. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Harley Ogier, editor of PCWorld.co.nz. And I'm uh, Mitch Olson, co-founder of Outsmart Studios, the uh, maker of the online virtual world, Small Worlds. Excellent. Well, great to have both of you on the show. It's been uh, been a little while, I think, in uh, in both cases. Now, uh, Harley, a little bit's changed since we uh, we last uh, spoke with you. We've been having some discussions around uh, uh, the fate of PC World, Computer World, and uh, and so on. Uh, tell us what's what's happened and uh, how you've uh, landed up wearing a uh, PC World hat again. Indeed. Well. Uh about a uh, month ago, or a little less, PC World, Computer World, Reseller News, and CIO magazines all ceased publication under Fairfax Media. The um, they were all under license from uh, IDG Communications globally, who runs PC World abroad, and uh, they've all come back under the IDG fold. The print magazine, at least for PC World, uh, will not be returning, but we will be continuing to operate the website, and that's where I come in. So I'll be um, heading up a website in New Zealand and collaborating with Australia for content where that matches and still producing local reviews uh, in particular will be my responsibility and we will still be covering local events, local news, wherever that's appropriate. Oh, that's, well, that's great news because it, it, yeah, I think we were a little bit worried that uh, really the the New Zealand side of it was going to be you know, basically run out of Australia with not much happening locally. It was all a bit concerning. So it's great that, uh, uh, that you've landed back at, uh, at PC World uh, and uh, uh, you know, taking the reins there. Yeah, it's good to be back, and it will definitely be very New Zealand-focused. If you look at it right now, it's a bit Australian on the front page, but uh, they've been holding, holding it, uh, keeping it warm for us over the last couple of weeks. So uh, I, I took over yesterday. Okay, okay. And uh, what about uh, Computer World and uh, Reseller News? Where do they fit into the picture? I do know that they will continue on website at least. Uh, I don't know any details at this point. Um, Last I heard, uh, someone would be taking care of those in New Zealand specifically, but I don't know any details. Right, so it's all still still sort of in motion, I suppose. It is. Um, I think that should all be sorted out fairly soon, though, within the next month or so. And how many people do you uh, expect to be involved with uh, with PC World locally here? Uh, locally, it's just me at this point, and I'm again I'm dealing closely with the uh, PC World Australia team, and um, we'll see how it goes from there. Okay, you met, you mentioned before we started about some other staff coming on board. Will they be across other um, other? the other uh, will, properties or um, there, there will be staff across the other properties in New Zealand but that's what I'm not sure about the specifics of at this, right. this point okay okay that's good well it's great to have PC World back it's great to be back thank you <laughs> uh, and uh, Mitch Small Worlds how are you guys uh, how are you guys getting uh, getting on um Maybe just for those that haven't, that uh, aren't familiar, maybe you can just give a quick rundown on uh, on what Small Worlds is all about. Sure. So Small Worlds is a uh, is an online virtual world which is uh, runs in a browser, targeted at predominantly at teens. We launched uh, back in two thousand and nine, uh, and we've been predominantly focusing on the uh, US market over the last few years. Um, last year, we launched into Brazil. Um, when we were looking at, at our uh, first non-English market to launch into, we looked 
at the what was a good fit for our product at, relative to the the um, the different personalities, if you like, of different countries. And, and our products are very social products. So a lot of people just uh, excuse female, sixty five percent female. And and uh, what we discovered in our investigation was that Brazilians are the most um, social people in the world on, on average. Uh, they, I think they have something like four hundred and eighty people in their. Uh, each person has in their social network. I think Japan was at the bottom of the list, so we thought we'd go for Brazil before we went into Japan. Um, and so that's uh, been a massive uh, growth area for us. We've, we've grown um, in the last 12 months. We've probably grown our user base in Brazil by over 2 million, which probably took us two or three years to grow in the US market. So, And next focus for us is looking at the uh, – is growing and extending our, our product uh, across to mobile platforms, but to smartphones and tablets. Well, that's pretty exciting. That's that's a a big user base. Then you've you've got you're really well up into the millions. Then, yeah, I think overall we we do probably around about uh, a million monthly actives across our our our, our two products, and. Um, it's uh, it's unlike uh, one of the one of the advantages of a product like ours is that our we have quite strong retention, so it means that we've got a good opportunity to engage with our with our players to build uh, a connection with them, and then to uh, hopefully encourage them to impart with some of their money. And uh, how hard is it to do that to get uh, to get you know you got a million users uh, logging in? It'd be quite nice if you get a hundred bucks a month off them. Um, but I mean, real, real, realistically, you know that I'm sure that's not the case. But you know how how hard is it, and uh, is it a reasonable percentage of users that that end up uh, you know uh, paying? Well, the the, the free to play and and and. and freemium model as a whole is is one which is becoming uh which i think probably started in the in the gaming industry and we've seen it extend to lots of other industries it's you know software as a service and um we're seeing it obviously in the in in um, harley's industry and the publishing industry we're seeing that same sort of effectively freemium model Um, and in general terms when you look at freemium Based businesses, you looked to, on average, um, convert about five percent of those of your customer base into playing payers, uh, and then the and that obviously varies from from product to product. Ours is probably somewhere around somewhere between five and ten percent, um, and then of those people who uh, who do play, then you're looking at probably. On average, you might get somewhere between twenty and thirty dollars um, a month from those those players who pay. Mm. Oh, that's uh, that's not a you know not an amount to be sniffed at. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good stuff. Well, um, now a bunch of topics to chat through. Uh, one of them uh, that we'll start with is uh, Leap Motion. Now, this is a product that's been uh, talked about. Uh, yeah, probably probably a year ago since we sort of or so that we first started hearing about it. Uh, there's been a lot of coverage uh, in various forms, as YouTube videos up and so on. But uh, uh, it's really just been in the in the last uh, day that this has uh, been uh, become available, and people have been uh, started to uh, receive them. Um, there were press units that were sort of sent out. Um, uh, last week, and uh, people have had their hands on on uh, on those. Uh, but um, yeah, it's quite an interesting device. And Mitch, you you ordered one, um, as did I. Now I haven't actually seen my one yet, but I have had uh, have had a bit of a chance to uh, to 
to play with one. Um, as as have you, just share with us uh, your experience of uh, of leap motion. Now, if I guess effectively, maybe you well, maybe you can start with just what it is, what it's supposed to do. Sure. So uh, if if you've if you've had any experience with, for instance, the Xbox Connect, it's probably closest in uh, in terms of what it does to an Xbox Connect, where effectively it's looking at um, the movement, and in particular the movement of your hands, and 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 and, and turning that into as a you Using that as an input device, so one, I guess one of the differences between the leap motion is that it, it, it would sit typically either in front or behind your keyboard, and I think it has a the the area of motion that it's detecting is about two cubic feet. Um, so, and and the from what I understand about the product is that the degree of granularity in terms of its capacity to detect, you know, the slightest uh, changes in your uh, in the movement of fingers is a lot finer than you would see than you have with the Connect. So I ordered uh, mine earlier on in the year uh, based upon the recommendation of my son. I thought, well, at least if I don't want it, he can uh, he can have it. But uh, I got it this morning, plugged it in, had a little play, and it reminded me a little bit of, um, and I'm probably showing my age here somewhere, but uh, reminded me of first using a mouse. Um, I don't know whether any any of you can remember when you first used a mouse, but I can remember feeling slightly kind of unco, uh, uncoordinated in, in terms of um, using it. And... Uh, and uh, so my overall experience, first of all, is okay. There's a learning in the same way that you need to learn that fine motor control and controlling a mouse. I think it's the same sort of learning curve. So not quite that same immediate uh, experience of mastery and delight that you have, say, in when we, you know, we first came across uh, touch-based devices. But um, I've, I'm uh, hopeful that it will be a. Uh, an interesting medium that uh, software developers uh, will explore. Yeah, I think uh, you know it's it's early days, isn't it? That's uh, that, that, that yeah, that's sure. definitely the point with it. Um, Harley, you've been sort of look, looking um, at this and at, a, at, a, at you know some other products. Uh, at one of, one of which you were you were uh, mentioning earlier, or, or another uh, input method. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, where you think the leap motion sort of uh, fits in in terms of replacing the mouse, replacing uh, the keyboard, and other sorts of uh, input uh, input methods? Well, I uh, I started looking at the leap motion probably a couple of months ago, just uh, seeing it on the web. I I had no idea it was actually going to release this soon. I think the release was stepped up quite a bit, wasn't it? It was. No, uh, I think it was stepped back. Was um, it stepped back? It might have been okay. a couple of months ago. Was when it was originally due to launch. Yeah, right. And then they okay. they they delayed it a, a little bit to, to get some software right or okay or right. something. But it ha- I mean, yeah, Lots. it hadn't had huge coverage over that sort mm. of uh, yeah in, in between time. Yeah, when when I first spotted it, I mean, it it sort of it it struck me as as gimmick. I I've tried a couple of um, similar systems um, probably in the last couple of years, but they have all been web camera based, and um, some of them ship as standard now um, on uh, all in one PCs to give you a bit of control without actually touching the touchscreen. With the idea that you could use that, say, if your hands were dirty, and they've always been hilariously inaccurate. The um, the leap motion promises a lot, and um, I don't know. I'd I'd love to try one myself. From but but uh, what what I actually interested me a lot more was uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce this. It's M Y O. 
And I don't know if that's meant to be like meow or <laughs> or myo or or if it's an acronym. But anyway, myo, it's yeah, um, yeah. myo. Oh, myo. That that sounds yeah. perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Um, by Thalmic Labs, and that's a band that sits at the I guess you'd say the base of your forearm, just by uh, by your elbow, but just below your elbow, and um, that uh, picks up the muscle the um, muscle signals in your arm, the electrical signals to the muscle in your arm, which obviously set the position of your fingers because all the muscles that control your fingers are actually in your forearm and is meant to give you very accurate finger control and also some degree of arm positioning. I don't know if that's by accelerometer or, or what, but the demonstration video that they've got, and obviously you've got to take anything like that with a huge truckload of salt, but the demonstration video has someone playing Mass Effect with it, using it um, as a sort of, like you'd use a light gun in, a, in an arcade. And um, also uh, someone changing the volume on their stereo uh, and um, just, just by making a hand gesture, someone paging through, uh, I think it was on iPad or a laptop, paging through recipes in the kitchen while their hands were covered in chicken. Um, but it's all based on this thing that you actually wear, so which is communicating by, I believe it's Bluetooth. But uh, that actually means that you can wear this under your clothing or something. And it's a very sort of thin, it's only a wristwatch thickness band. Mm. And you could actually have that control anywhere and not have to have this little box in front of your laptop, which say if you're... You know, in a in a conf- more slightly more confined space, but where you could still make gestures, like in a plane or something, then it might be a bit easier there. Or though I suppose wireless plane, no. But yeah, uh, it, 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 no, just, it, it, do, it does yeah. look look really good, and the videos yeah. with uh, with watching, we'll uh, we'll try and include uh, that in the um, uh, in the show notes up at nztechpodcast.com because uh, that yeah that one does does look cool as well. Uh, and I think yeah, often these things sort of you know demonstrate really well in the videos, but. They don't always uh, maybe deliver as well, and particularly in sort of a first generation. Yeah, and and that's probably part of the picture. There is, you know, there is a bit of learning to do, and that's the difference to our touch-based devices, which are just so obvious and so easy to use. Right? Yeah. Um, there, there's there's quite a quite a quite a difference. Just on that subject, and it's not an input device, but an output device. Something I had an opportunity to play with um, recently was the Oculus Rift, the uh, virtual. Um, uh, virtual glasses, virtual reality glasses, and that I can promise you is going to be an absolutely amazing breakthrough when we start to see that it is. Um, so this is basically a, uh, if you like, goggles that 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 fit over your head. There's a three uh, D. Uh, so two. Uh, so yes, you can get three um, D from it, but mm. so effectively you've got two little. Uh, LCD screens in front of your eyes. Uh, there's an accelerometer in there, and so as for instance, if you're in a 3D environment, as you turn your head, it's effectively like you're moving your head in that particular environment, and it's it's something that you have to experience to really appreciate just how awesome it is. The, the resolution on them at the moment is relatively low, so mm. your first experience when you put these the the headset on is you do notice the pixelation, but that goes away very quickly. And um, I think that's going to be a real breakthrough, and in terms, particularly obviously in the gaming space, um, mm. those sorts of devices are really going to add a, a lot of an, a, a, a high level of immersion to gaming experiences. Oh, that sounds cool! Yeah, there's been a few of those sort of headsets out in the past, but uh, you know, I don't think they've had their sort of accelerometer and those sort of pieces in there. They're really just a you know screens that that go you know up close to to your eyes so uh no, that sounds that sounds kind of cool the um the other thing um 
looking at what the uh, the Mayo um, uh, does is I guess there's a potential for that sort of functionality maybe to be included in a future smartwatch. You know, we look at you know maybe you know Apple and Microsoft and you know, a bunch of others that are uh, that are that are in that space, you know, as well as Pebble and so on. Uh, you know, you could imagine they want to uh, build in as much capability as they can, and if you know if you had one of these uh, uh, wristband type functionality that could be handled uh, from a watch as well, it could do all sorts of things. You could replace your uh, mouse, for instance, and you know just move your hand around on the desk without necessarily having something under it, and it knows you know knows what you're doing. That might actually also help solve the control problem with smartwatches because while you wouldn't be want to, wanting to be moving your arm around while the watch is on it, um, if you use the uh, like the Mayo, if we're going to call it that, the um, sounds plausible. If you're going to use the uh, muscle, the muscle electrical signal detection, then you could be looking at your finger positions and moving the, your fingers to control the watch without actually placing them on the screen. Mm. It's one of the biggest problems with smartwatches now is that if they're touchscreen based, which the majority are, you're covering the screen, which is only about the size of you know a very large man's thumb. Mm. Um, you're almost entirely covering the screen when you're using it. Yep, yep. Uh, that's, that's, a good, yeah, that's a good a point. Good, good thing uh, if they can solve that as well because, yeah, and, and also the fact that you like to just stretch out and have a look at your watch, right, without actually, without actually touching it and... Uh, um, the the one that uh, that I've got we talked about some months ago, uh, you know you've got to go and press the button to sort of wake it up because it's got a colour screen oh, like, and so mm-hmm. on and uh, so, yeah. yeah so yeah. the the idea of uh, being being controlled by gestures of movement is is probably mm-hmm. uh, r- really good. Well, that's really a throwback to the old nineteen seventies watches when LED watches first came in and uh, because of the huge power drain you had to press the button to see the time. Uh, most stylish thing possible, but uh, not exactly practical. No, no, not not really. But um, that was an. Ex- I can remember that was a real status symbol having an LED watch as a kid in those days. Having the uh, little calculator on your uh, on your watch. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I never had one of those. I wasn't quite cool enough um, or geeky enough or whatever uh, category you had to be in to have that. Uh, now, um, uh, Zomato is a uh, is an Indian company that uh, got in touch last week, and they uh, they have a uh, a website and an app which is um, around uh, restaurants and helping you get uh, get access to uh, to the best food around the place. Uh, quite interesting, actually. A little startup, well, not that little. Though I think they've got about two hundred staff in India, uh, but a startup uh, there. And uh, we've, we we actually had quite a uh, quite an in depth discussion uh, with them that we're going to be launching uh, under the NZ Digital Podcast. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit about uh, a startup that's that's gone through uh, uh, you know various sort of funding rounds and uh, is expanding uh, globally, and they've they've launched uh, their app across. Uh, uh, iPhone, Android, Windows Phone, BlackBerry 10, uh, as well as on the web, and seemed to be doing a reasonably good uh, job of it. Was getting good, uh, good local content. Uh, then that's yeah, definitely quite a, quite an interesting story worth listening into. Um, initially, their listings for New Zealand just cover Auckland and Wellington. Uh, they're going to be expanding out to also cover uh, Hamilton and uh, and Christchurch sometime over the next uh, over the next uh, 12 months but it's an interesting approach where it requires them to actually have quite a few staff on the ground because they're going in and uh, for the restaurants that they're covering which seems to be a large majority of them and uh, for instance when I looked in London there were 
oh, thousands and thousands of, uh, of listings of all sorts of categories. Uh, they generally have a huge amount of detail around each one. So there's, uh, in most cases, a current menu, the same as you'd get if you walk, walked into the restaurant. So they scan those, and those get updated apparently every few months so that they're, uh, they're always reasonably uh, current and up-to-date in terms of what's on the menu and the prices. Uh, they've got photos of food, and you can... Uh, you know, basically fire up the app and it will uh, show you the restaurants that are in reasonably close uh, proximity to you. Um, I think they're still filling out their content because when, uh, when I used it today, um, it did miss a bunch of the, uh, the restaurants that were sort of near, nearby and it might be that they only show restaurants that maybe you've got a rating. Uh, so it's very much as a sort of a social and a community app. So people have got to get in there and uh, and and you know produce reviews and give ratings to uh, restaurants. And as it's only been been launched for for a day or two, uh, some of that uh, ratings information will be will be pretty sparse. But they seem to have uh, made a good effort to really fill out the content. Just uh, looking at the website, there, um, I, I'm quite impressed to see that you can actually search by a particular dish. So. Um yeah, they, they've gone to, I guess that's sort of, yeah, much more in depth than if you say look at uh, you know, a platform like Yelp, which is just general business directory that goes down to a level uh, by focusing purely in on the food and by uh, having, they seem to have a lot of staff to actually compile the information, uh, they actually generate something that's pretty uh, pretty useful. Um, I think what they were saying was that you know, sort of a, a fine dining restaurant to get a listing uh, or a premium sort of listing, so they'll have like banner ads and so on that they do on on the website, um, is in the range of five hundred to fifteen hundred dollars a month. So, on that sort of basis, they're obviously expecting there to be a lot of eyeballs to uh, to really uh, deliver that value to a restaurant to be spending. Uh, yeah, if you're going to spend a thousand dollars, you want to uh, you want to get quite a few people uh, people through your restaurant. You want to get a lot more than a thousand dollars worth of, of people through your restaurant. Absolutely, um, but that seems to be their model, and apparently they're uh, they're already um, uh, profitable, breaking even in, in quite a number of, of markets. So uh, yeah, good good addition to uh, um, local apps. Often New Zealand is is well down the list, but uh, yeah, they've they've picked us off before Australia as a bit of a, a test in uh, in this region. And uh, yeah, seem to be doing a reasonable job. Uh, now, Ubuntu Edge, Mitch, you were uh, you were talking about this one uh, e- earlier on uh, with us, and uh, this has had a, had a bit of coverage over the last uh, last day day or so. Um, basically, a uh, a crowd funded um, smartphone launch. Yeah, an interesting, an interesting product. I guess you know when you look at what's going on in terms of devices, um, we we see this increasing convergence going on, and um, you know I think uh, probably the the an example of the you know the Microsoft Surface, for instance, is a good example of a device which is converging the the tablet and the uh, and the laptop. Um, but the logical question is: So, where does the convergence of smartphones and tablets and uh, uh, laptops come together? And and the Ubuntu, Ubuntu Edges seems to be the, an attempt to try and answer that uh, question by uh, developing a uh, a smartphone which you can effectively just plug a screen and a keyboard into, and then it becomes your uh, your your laptop. So they've taken a really interesting approach where they're basically looking to crowdsource the uh, the funding of this project, and it's probably I think it would it is by far the most ambitious crowdsourced 
uh, sorry, when I say crowds, um, crowdfunded uh, mm. project, uh, they're looking to raise thirty-two million dollars um, to to kick to, to kick this project off. They're using the platform Indiegogo. Uh, this morning, I when I, I first came across it, they'd raised two million uh, US, and I looked late. Uh, I looked at probably about an hour ago, and they'd raised about three. It's a very ambitious um, amount uh, um, target to raise, and and. Um, but by looking at, if you look on the uh, if you look on the Indiegogo site, um, it, it looks like a, an interesting um, an interesting idea. Have you have you had a look at it yourself, Paul? Yeah, look looks interesting. Uh, one of the uh, one of the captions that I quite liked actually TechRadar.com, They called it the thirty two million dollar phone because <laughs> uh, uh, that's how much they need to raise to uh, uh, to, to launch it in terms of crowdfunding. Uh, but yeah, it, it looks like a really really interesting uh, concept. And you know, I guess when when we uh, I mean we talked to the guys at Ubuntu uh, at CES. Uh, in Vegas and in January and got some insights into it and you know really the concept with from the operating system perspective is, is having this one operating system uh, that you know can scale you know right down to the smartphone but up to a full-blown uh, you know desktop computer same operating system really uh, you know running anywhere and uh, yeah it, it seems definitely to make uh, to make some good sense. The, I guess the questions will really, you know, come up around: Are people ready for another operating system? Uh, but you know, if they can do something, uh, they can do something unique and get uh, get a lot of publicity off the back of this uh, uh, crowdfunding campaign. That that will certainly help them uh, help them along in the right direction. I mean, we're talking about a pretty high end uh, uh, hand handset. Uh, it's got four gigs of uh, RAM. Uh, quad core process, 128 uh, gigs of uh, of storage. So uh, you know, a um, and not a low spec device uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's still the best part of a uh, a year away. It comes out in the first. Uh, I think uh, it's May 2014. Yeah, I think it's just in the first first half of 2014. And if you want um, to support that, I think it's uh, 830 US dollars is the uh, is the buy-in price for um, getting in on uh, supporting that project and and getting one of the first um, one of those devices that comes out. It's got uh, as well as the um, uh, mobile version of Ubuntu. It's got uh, Android and then converts into a fully uh, full version of uh, Ubuntu desktop. So. You'll be able to the idea of just the single uh, device that um, meets all your needs is is there. And I think if your question, Paul, does the world need another um, uh, operating system? The answer to that's clearly no. But if there was one uh, potential um, avenue into creating potentially another. Uh, Operating system that has uh, that could potentially grab some presence. It would be this. It would be the path, and I think where they're the first to uh, offer a, a device which can um, stretch both from your pocket right through to your desktop. And it's a very reasonable you know, price point when you think about it. If yeah, if this is something you're interested in, then uh, we definitely encourage people to jump in on the campaign and uh, you know help help with the funding and uh, you know be right at right at the forefront when. Uh, uh, when this launches, uh, you know, next year. I mean, you're really talking about the price of a, um, you know, a top end smartphone today, Galaxy S4, uh, etc. 
in terms of pricing, uh, but much more uh, much more powerful. Uh, I mean, who knows quite what we'll get for the same money uh, next year, but uh, it does seem like a pretty compelling uh, compelling offering. Would you be lining up for one of these, Harley? I might be lining up for one of them if they actually existed, but in terms of the uh, investment, I mean, it is an investment. It's not a purchase. You've got to remember that with any of these crowdfunding sites. You might spend $830 and get precisely nothing if they don't raise the $32 million. They don't take your money, though, if they, they don't, don't raise the limit. No. So the, the way that these crowdfunded projects work is if, unless they reach the amount, that minimum threshold, then they don't take your money. There, are, there is, I guess, the risk that they don't deliver or they don't deliver what they say they'll deliver. The difference with this one, because it is coming from a uh, you know a reputable firm that you know that's been around for quite some time, uh, you know I think that you know every people would have every reason to expect that they'll get something you know very close to what they pay for, uh, or else the funds won't be taken off their credit card if they don't reach the target. But the rate they're going, I think they're going to. Uh, well, they've got a reasonable chance of, uh, of of hitting it, even though it's a hugely about, lofty target. I've got 30 days to uh, get $26.8 million. That's what they need. $26.7 million. So what are they up to right now? $3,255,871 US dollars. It's not bad. Not bad. All right. Well, uh, we, we're going to keep following this one. So... Uh, uh, it's, it will be uh, it'll be great to get a hands on a device and maybe uh, since they did have a bit of a presence at uh, at CES last year maybe we'll be able to have a bit of a uh, a bit of a hands on with a, with a trial one uh, come January still quite some months off but uh, uh, hey it's not uh, it's not forever away anyway uh, now talking of other uh, I guess um, uh, groundbreaking. Uh, Technologies, uh, Microsoft Surface RT. Now, uh, when they ca- when that came out, uh, you know, late last year, quite a unique uh, device. Uh, and um, well, something with a lot of uh, a lot of competition trying to make its way in the market, and uh, hasn't done so well, has it, Mitch? No, unfortunately. Uh, no, I guess I say unfortunately from the point of view that. Um the you know the more competition that we have out there, the better our ultimately the better for consumers as a whole. And it, it's uh, it's an, a, Microsoft wrote off uh, nine hundred million dollars uh, last week in in in, in um, inventory, wasn't it? An inventory for that device and and, re, and significantly reduced the the price on it. So it's a lot of bang for your buck, I guess. One why, of the, why do you think they they um this happened. Do you think they they just had far too high expectations and had, you know, um, I don't know, five million of these things uh, made? I'm not sure what the numbers were. I'm not sure they gave away the numbers on how many were uh, produced, but they, you know, they probably sold a million or or uh, or so um, of them to date, right? Let me give a facetious answer and then pass over to Harley to give a more informed answer. <laughs> the reason they didn't sell so many was because uh, because they've because uh, of Steve Bellmer. They should get rid of him. Um, and let me pass over to Harley for uh, a more informed opinion than that. <laughs> what do you think? Should they should they uh, should Steve Barmer be uh, be out the door? I don't know on that on that case, but I, I I mean I think the reason they didn't sell so many they didn't sell well enough of them was just that they did things completely backwards in terms of launching Windows eight because by the time anyone yeah. was able to get their hands on a Surface not just in New Zealand but abroad, um, I mean the Surface Pro or the RT, 
they uh, had already seen Windows 8 on a desktop or a laptop and were terrified of the experience. Because Windows 8 really, really does sacrifice the traditional desktop experience to, to, have, to, to be good at touch. And if the uh, RT had been there and PCs were still shipping with Windows 7 and were due to go to 8, and everyone had seen 8 first on the Surface or the Surface RT then I think attitudes would be very different because people would have seen it in its best environment. But because everyone was already terrified of the new operating system, why would you buy a tablet thinking that the operating system had already failed? It, it's just it's, a completely wrong way to launch. Good point, Harley. Really good point. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, the good news that we heard last week was that they've... Uh, there's, well, there's a couple of things we've heard over the last few weeks. Uh, one... Windows 8.1, of course, is coming to uh, coming to the Surface as a free uh, free upgrade, and you can actually get that on your Surface right now. Uh, the other is that the cut down version of Office that was shipping with the service uh, Surface uh, has now been bumped up to include Outlook, so it becomes much more useful. Uh, device in those regards, uh, and three uh, considerable amount had been knocked off the price, so it's now down at uh, four hundred ninety nine dollars in New Zealand. It is listed as a on the uh, the retailer where we saw that it was listed as a temporary special through to the end of the month, but uh, it seems highly unlikely that the uh, the price of the Surface is going to be going uh, back up again. That seems to be a permanent price cut in the US, and we would expect it to be so in New Zealand. Uh, if you want to be on the safe side, yeah, dash out and get one now. Uh, and at four nine nine, it is actually a, a pretty uh, compelling option for a ten point six inch uh, uh, tablet with uh, with Office. The addition of Outlook definitely makes it a lot more attractive to business users. Because one of the greatest criticisms I've heard from enterprise and, and um, small business users is that the mail app that's part of uh, Windows eight is just atrocious. It's it's not even really a full featured home mail app, and in a business sense, just doesn't function. Yeah, well, that and that was certainly the case at launch. I mean, they've since updated that, and it's got be a dramatic increase in features over the. I think the update that came out probably a couple of months ago has really improved that. Uh, but yeah, it is still a it's still a tablet you know based uh, mail app, so it doesn't have the full uh, you know the full depth of of Outlook. That's that's for sure. But it's streets ahead of. Uh, of where it was at at launch, which you know again was another reason, uh, you know probably why Windows, why the, uh, the Surface and and other such devices didn't do uh, didn't do better. Uh, now um, today we had um, SAP have just launched a sort of a cloud offering into the New Zealand uh, market, and I mean of course their software is, is aimed uh, very much at. Uh, uh, you know, traditionally at the very large sort of enterprise uh, businesses, but with their uh, their cloud offering allows them to uh, um, you know, offer something to sort of smaller businesses. You know, potentially in that sort of ten to twenty user size. Uh, you know, right up, and they've got clients using their cloud offerings um, now, and you know, many thousands of users. Um, but we'll uh, we'll probably chat a little bit more about that next week uh, when we've got uh, Bill Bennett uh, back on the show. He was. Uh, uh, at at the launch event uh, for for that one with me uh, today, so we'll uh, we'll skip past that uh, for any further discussion until uh, until next week. Now, uh, one of the one of the other uh, topics been interesting in the last few days is uh, the I guess the branding that we're seeing our large uh, telcos apply to their their internet offerings. So we've seen uh, Telecom apply the ultra branding on their. Uh, their VDSL and their ultra-fast broadband uh, products, which uh, they started with their ultra-fast broadband by calling it uh, ultra-broadband, which was a little bit 
confusing because they dropped out the ultra fast. Uh, and uh, and now they've also got uh, they've got ultra VDSL. Um, is that going to cause any confusion? You think, Harley? Yes. <laughs> Though I mean, I'd li- I'd like to point out that the term ultra broadband is is technically accurate because it is ultra broad. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then along uh, following that, and I don't know whether this has been previously uh, uh, planned or not or just a coincidence, uh, Vodafone have uh, have wrapped some branding around uh, their various networks. I don't think you could say they've got one network. They've got all sorts of different bits and pieces sort of... uh, um, you know, joined together in, in, in various ways. They've called theirs uh, Supernet. That's their uh, new branding, which of course covers all the various facets of their, you know, their mobile network, which consists of 2G, 3G, and 4G mobile. Uh, they've got uh, uh, copper cabling running into uh, various buildings, much like uh, what uh, uh, Telecom pr- traditionally uh, provided and now run by uh, Chorus. They've got that running, I know, into some of the CBD areas. In fact, we've got their uh, some of their copper uh, running into our building here with the VDSL service on it. Uh, and then they've got uh, f- you know, fibre networks and, uh, and of course, their, uh, their cable network, which they have in... Uh, Christchurch, uh, Kapiti Coast, and uh, and Wellington. Um, is anybody confused by this uh, the supernet as well? I haven't really been following it much, but I, I guess just wearing my businessman hat, I can see the logic behind these sorts of um, bundled products. You know, when if you're a uh, an ISP or a, a mobile provider, you've got uh, a number of different uh, companies that you're competing with. Whereas if you can um, Add genuine value uh, or a, uh, a better price by bundling a, a number of different products up into uh, under a single brand and under a single product, then uh, the number of competitors that you've got uh, dramatically reduces, and the opportunity or the potential to to have a, a longer term, um, uh, longer attention with your with your customers uh, grows as well. So. From a pure business perspective, it seems to me that that's uh, that's uh, quite a compelling reason if you've got those resources to be able to and those products to be able to bring them together and sell them in that way. Yeah, and and I'm sure you know for those reasons that they've uh, they've done it. Um, the the one thing, and and I guess I've been a little bit vocal about this that annoys me uh, around what Vodafone are doing is that you know they're, they're saying hey we're the we're we've got this super net and uh, you know they've uh, they've really created a lot of hype around uh, launching of their four G network of Vodafone being right at the forefront. Uh, yet uh, Vodafone have yet to launch a you know a VDSL uh, internet. Uh, Offering uh, following uh, you know, Chorus's announcement that they make that available to uh, telcos at you know virtually the same price, effectively the same price as ADSL uh, internet, and uh, they haven't yet launched a commercial uh, ultra fast broadband uh, offering yet either, or have given uh, a time frame on either of those. Uh, so there is actually you know they have got the super net, and that's uh, that's great. Uh, yeah, particularly for those that are in um, Christchurch, Wellington, and, and Kapiti Coast, where they can get access to that uh, cable network, because that is something that's really unique to them. Uh, but uh, yeah, they've still got a couple of uh, a couple of holes, 
and uh, you know I think uh, they will be losing uh, losing customers that uh, want to stay on uh, you know the latest and greatest network options that are available and uh, they're not being available made available uh, to uh, to customers of uh, you know what is uh, I guess the um, um, the second big uh, biggest uh, telco in the country so uh, yeah I think um, also, I mean, looking at the SuperNet branding and, and what you're saying about uh, potentially being confusing, um, broadband plans as a whole, I mean, this applies to mobile plans as well, but I'll stick with broadband plans here, are phenomenally confusing. And it's not just a New Zealand thing, but uh, just trying to work out, I mean, if we ever try and do a survey of what plans are available, uh, it, it can take uh, days, if not longer just to go through the websites and see the various plans that are available, what configurations they're available in, where they're available, uh, how the price might differ if, you, if you're a member of this or that other service. So um, introducing a, a new branding and then when you get partway through the website, then finding out that this doesn't actually involve UFB and there are, don't seem to be actual concrete plans that I can see right there anyway. Yeah, it, um, it definitely is a bit confusing. And one of the, mm. one of the points is that they've applied the UFB uh, terminology, which in New Zealand has been sort of synonymous uh, with the government's um, uh, you know, rollout of fibre, they're using that same terminology to talk about uh, their existing cable network, uh, which, which is a sort of the hybrid uh, fibre network uh, that's you know, just available in, in uh, you know, that, that Wellington and, and Christchurch and Kapiti region uh, as well. So that does create a little bit of extra confusion, I suppose, too. I mean, but in, in practical terms, I think that the, the the in my experience, the biggest constraint or the biggest bottleneck is obviously is our our access to um, to the US and, and international um, uh, broadband um, speed. So it's all very well having uh, seven or eight megabytes per second uh, local access, but um, that drops very quickly once you um, need to connect to data or video streams or whatever it happens to be from overseas. Yeah, I mean, there is a definite benefit of having access to, you know, having data closer, you know, coming to you from uh, from not such a big distance. Uh, but, I mean, it seems at this stage from, you know, what we can tell is that the, uh, the international connections when you deal with a larger ISP aren't generally aren't generally uh, flooded where in my experience anyway where I usually see that con- those constraints are um, maybe an ISP that isn't uh, you know quite as well uh, connected or investing as much in their international uh, you know bandwidth if you're on a, a um, you know a, a, a really good ISP um, they can typically you know afford to, to give you pretty good international uh, pretty good international performance but you are constrained technically uh, by that distance, because it does, uh, yeah, it does actually limit uh, the bandwidth because of the way that the uh, the technology works. Yeah. Uh, now, um, another another topic we uh, we discussed a little bit uh, recently, and I've just sort of finished up uh, playing with is uh, the uh, the trial of Telecom's um, mobile uh, wallet that they've been uh, running in conjunction with. Uh, uh, Westpac, and uh, this is basically what I've been using is is a um, a special uh, special SIM card from uh, from Telecom that has a secure element in it. Uh, it sits. I've got it at the moment sitting inside a uh, Samsung uh, Galaxy S3 uh, hand, handset, uh, which has the near field communications uh, capability, as do you know, quite a number of uh, 
uh, Android and uh, and also Windows Phone handsets now. It's sort of becoming uh, quite a norm on pretty much every platform other than uh, uh, iPhone. Uh, and with this, um, it basically incorporates the um, a, um, a Westpac Mastercard, uh, the PayPass technology. And uh, this is technology at the moment that I guess isn't so widespread. We've got PayPass and we've got uh, PayWave from uh, from Visa. And you'll notice that at uh, most of the big supermarkets uh, now have it. I think Countdown have sort of rolled it out pretty broadly. Uh, the likes of uh, the Warehouse and Mitre 10. And I would think by the time this technology launches sort of more broadly next year, um, we'll see it, you know, it'll become you know, pretty much normal as people replace their FPOS terminals with new terminals. Uh, you know, you've got that ability to tap your uh, credit card on to pay. Uh, and if you've got a, uh, a mobile wallet um, uh, such as this one we've been trying out, then you basically just take the, the uh, smartphone and, uh, and tap it on to, uh, to the payment terminal. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's kind of cool. Bring it on. Do you have to be running the app, or, or do you have to do something on the smartphone before you pay, or will it just work? No, you don't have to. Um, and there's a couple of gotchas that I mean don't just relate to the smartphone um, that we've heard about. Um, one, and I'm not quite sure how this happened, but I heard of somebody that paid for uh, somebody else's uh, somebody else's uh, groceries. Um, so you've got to be careful not to put your um, you know your your credit card or your uh, smartphone too close to the payment terminal at the time that uh, payment is required because you know if you happen to wave your one uh, straight past it then uh, well I guess that's why they call it why uh, Visa call it PayWave um, you know you you uh, you potentially could pick up that uh, that payment uh, but they're looking up for those things and they'll credit back if you know if mistakes happen I guess in these early stages uh, but yeah people will learn to be a little bit uh, a little bit more cautious. Uh, there are there are some risks. I, I you know I imagine um, that that we'll hear about as as time goes on. You know people uh, with um, portable machines sort of swiping them past your uh, pocket in a in a crowd and so on. But you know again it is a credit card. There are sort of protections around those sorts of things. And if they saw a whole lot of fraudulent payments through one channel, then uh, I don't imagine uh, Visa or Mastercard are actually going to pay out to that particular. Uh, um, you know, retailer or whoever's got the machine. I'm still very unconvinced by the uh, NFC payment um, in, in general, actually. Um, I think the smartphones, because they actually allow some, I mean, even if they don't use it now, they do allow some degree of user interaction mm. that may be quicker than entering a pen, even if it's just unlocking your phone. Mm. Um, but with the the straight cards that simply you do just wave or tap to to pay i think that removes the the pin as not an important security element but as an important element that tells you that you are making a payment of a certain value Mm. otherwise it's i think definitely the amount of times that people pay more than they were expecting at the till and then later find out if they even keep their receipt or when they then look at their bank statement later or you know some people never do look at their bank statement sure I mean, I think that there is a, a potential social problem there, and it's. I don't think I don't. I don't know enough about that technology to say whether the cards are any less secure, and I, I doubt they are. I'm sure they're very secure. Yeah. But I think that's an important human step to give some confirmation that you're paying, other than merely presenting your card, because you, yeah, that's mm. uh, that's a good point. And I mean, they do do that for the larger transactions. If you go over eighty dollars, you've got a key and a pin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you can imagine you might make a fifty dollar instead of a five dollar. Uh, 
you know, payment without necessarily realising. And we, we get very blasé. We sort of just expect the technology to work perfectly and so on. But, uh, yeah, it's not unusual to actually get billed the wrong amount or, uh, you know, pay for something you're not expecting mm. to pay but, for. But, but, again, I don't see so much a technical mm. problem as a social one. That I think that the entry of a PIN number or some other human forced action is is important in making a payment because it, it shows some kind of consent and it shows the thought I mean, there's there's some stage at which you can't keep buying drinks because you've put your <laughs> pin in the wrong the wrong way, and you're not going to have that when you can just tap and pay the eight or twenty dollars or whatever. Yep, uh, fair comment. Um, the the other thing that I found was uh, now you can uh, you can make a payment while you while you're on the phone on a call, but where I found you couldn't make a payment is if you let the battery go too flat. So if if the battery's just sort of run down, you're you're okay because usually still a bit of charge in it. But what I did to uh, just to test how it would handle if there was no battery as I kept turning the phone on until it couldn't turn on you know even for a second any longer mm-hmm. so it was really really drained uh, and at that point I went to make a payment and uh, yeah it was a little bit embarrassing being in the store because they're saying you can't pay with a smartphone anyway what are you thinking you know anytime you use it in a store people think <laughs> you're a little bit nuts right because uh, they've never seen it before and uh, so here's me trying to do a test uh, in, in a retailer and they're looking at me odd going you don't know what you're doing you can't make a payment uh, with, with your smartphone and uh, yeah and no I couldn't it was uh, it was entirely flat uh, but I gave it a charge up again and then used it uh, somewhere else I, I wasn't that concerned about my reputation to charge it back and go and, and show them again but uh, <laughs> I suppose I could have done uh, but uh, yeah a really uh, a really neat neat uh, thing to play with anyway and uh, it's always good to get a little bit of a taste of uh, of where the technology is sort of heading in the uh, heading in the future. Uh, now, what else have we got? Um, I think that probably just about wraps it up for uh, for us this week. Um, there's a couple of other little topics that um, we probably don't have time to uh, to discuss, so we'll uh, we'll save those up for uh, for a bit more discussion uh, next week. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. Now, um, where can we track you guys down online? Uh, Harley, you're, uh, you must be on Twitter. Indeed. Uh, you'll find me at, at Harley Ogier, which is very hard to spell, O-G-I-E-R, or you can get me at pcworld.co.nz. Very nice, very nice. And Mitch? Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is uh, at Mitch underscore Olson. That's uh, O-L-S-O-N. Okay, we'll put links up to uh, to both of those at nztechpodcast.com. Uh, and uh, my Twitter handle will be up there as well, uh, at Paul Spain. Um, and you can also find uh, find NZ Tech Podcast on, uh, on facebook.com slash nztechpodcast. Uh, and we're on Twitter at nztechpodcast as well. Uh, and we're even uh, there on Google Plus. So uh, yeah, look look forward to hearing from you on those channels. Um, we'd be very keen on hearing from any of you that have tried the leap uh, the leap motion. Um, I didn't end up getting to have too much of a sort of chat about my experience on it, but uh, we would be keen to get a, a, yeah, a bit of a broader uh, feedback after people have spent a uh, spent a few days playing with it, and uh, and whether you find the the experience uh, improves with time. Uh, but yeah, thanks everyone for joining us. We'll catch you on the next episode. See ya.